Psalm 131, beginning at verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvellous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's just pray briefly. Father, as we come to your word now, I pray that you would help me to preach uh, with clarity and with boldness and with great love for you and for your people, and that we would come together in agreement to your word. Speak to us now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a question for you. Are you a content person? Are you a content person, a satisfied person? Or are you a discontent person? Maybe often stressed, uh, angry, unsettled, maybe never saying no to anything because you you feel that you're missing out, never staying still for, for long, jumping from one thing to another, onto the next new thing, you know. The new diet, the new relationship, even the new church. I think the truth is that for most of us, we're a mixture, aren't we, of, of being content and discontent. Sometimes one, sometimes the other. But I guess you have to ask, which one defines you? Which one would, would you say you most are like? Have you learned the secret of true contentment. That's the title of my sermon this evening, is True Contentment. Could you say with the Apostle Paul, as he says in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now this psalm is a psalm of ascent. Uh, these are psalms that Israel would have, have sung as they made their way up to Jerusalem and the temple for holy days and several times a year. And these psalms uh, describe, if you like, what to expect in the life of a believer and then how to act as a believer and what to be as a believer. They give you kind of a a roadmap for for living as a believer in God. And it's notable uh, that this peace and contentment in Psalm 131 comes after great turmoil in Psalm 130. You just need to, to look back to it and and see the first verse out of the depths i cry to you o lord o lord hear my voice so here you have a picture of a drowning man crying for mercy and forgiveness and now in psalm 131 he's like a weaned child with a picture of contentment and peace and rest But the fact is this, isn't it, that that true contentment is far more easily spoken of than attained. True contentment is the kind that that knows the merciful love of God that saves and actually then rests in submission to this God in all of the uncertainties that, that you face in life. And don't we face lots of uncertainties in life? This true contentment is seen in an obedience to God's revealed will in the Bible and an acceptance of his secret will in those providences, especially those, those times in your life when life seems to take a turn for the worse and you can't understand how it's going to work out for your good and it seems too much to bear and even too much to understand at times. 
It's kind of contentment. That's the, that's the hardest one to attain. But it is the goal. And it's not something you just get, like, you know, you're zapped and suddenly you're just content. Remember Paul's words, I have learned, I have learned to be content. So you can't shortcut your way to contentment. You must learn it. It's actually the way to Christian maturity. And that's why the picture of the weaned child that we see here in the psalm is so appropriate. It takes us from the fractiousness of a child crying out for its bottle or its mother's milk to the contentedness of a child in a weaned condition that's resting in trust in its mother. So childlike trust is actually the sign of a believer's maturity. Now, this is a psalm of David. You can see it there, the the heading in the psalm, a psalm of David. And David would have known only too well what it meant to learn true contentment in submission to the Lord. Remember, David was anointed to be made king, all right? But on the way to the throne, things didn't look good for him. King Saul became his enemy and hunted him down and tried to kill him. David is on the run. It didn't look like he'd get the crown, and yet he did. And when he was king, though, David struggled with contentment and he struggled in uh, resisting God's revealed will. You remember, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He killed her husband, Uriah. We're all tempted to resist God's will, especially when it seems to go against his promises. Who in here hasn't sinned, if not by adultery, but by lust in the heart, if not by murder, but by anger in the heart. Yet here is David, the author of the psalm, who has learned contentment in the school of God. And he sets out three things in this very simple psalm, three things which mark the content person. The content person is number one, number one has a humble posture as a humble posture. And number two, the content person here is childlike. Childlike. And number three, the content person has a hopeful outlook. So humble, childlike, hopeful. These are the three things to see. First, he has a humble posture. He is humble. When you learn to be content in the Lord and submissive to his will in all of life, you find a new humility We could say you have a humble posture. And we see, if you look at the the text there, just verse 1, you you see that this humble posture is described with respect to the heart, with respect to the eyes, and with with respect to ambitions and actions. And, And also notice in each of those little sections that the humble posture or the humble person is described by what he is not. So look at the first one. We're looking at the heart here. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. In other words, he's not proud. He's not proud. His heart is not lifted up. And remember, pride starts in the heart. And pride is the seed of all sin. It was the first sin of Satan. When Satan fell from grace, it was the first sin of Adam. It is self-exaltation. 
and makes a person wise in their own eyes. Remember how Eve doubted God's word and when tempted by the serpent, she became wise in her own eyes and took the forbidden fruit. This kind of person wants their own way because they are me-centred. They are not God-centred. Their hearts are lifted up high. They do not, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, the passage that I read from in Philippians 2 earlier, count others more significant than themselves. They can't get away from self, so they're not aware of others and what's appropriate. They, they actually have a heart that is lifted up. It's where um, biblical parenting, think of biblical parenting. Biblical parenting is so different to secular parenting. When little Johnny won't share his toys with his brother, secular parenting says, now be nice and share, because that's good behaviour. But biblical parenting says, why do you not share with your brother? Because of selfish, prideful heart. So you need forgiveness from Jesus from your pride. And you need a new heart that Jesus gives when you trust in him for forgiveness. And when Jesus is king of your heart, you have a heart that's not lifted up. Because Jesus is on the throne and you learn to share what you have with your brother because you're not centred on yourself anymore. There's the difference. You see, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart and a prideful heart that is lifted up. But the humble posture of the content person has a heart that is not lifted up. Then there's the entitled person with the heart lifted up. Friends, we are an entitled culture, an entitled generation. We feel we deserve so much better than we get. We're so easily offended when we're not treated as if we think we should be treated with great respect. And everyone's easily offended now. Just go on social media for an hour and see how much anger and offence is out there. Because we're entitled. I deserve better. You owe me. We demand respect and we destroy those who will not give it to us. Because of pride. But not the humble man. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. You see, he's consciously lowered his heart because he has a renewed sense of the greatness of God. That will lower a man's heart. That will lower a man's heart. And this is the thing about humility. We must humble ourselves, but that happens when we're humbled by God. When you realise you're a sinner, you realise that you deserve the punishment of God, and yet you realise how much he has loved you in sending his own son to die for you. That will lower a man's heart. So David's heart is not proud, his heart is not lifted up. But also, now we look at the eyes. His eyes are not raised too high. So the heart is not lifted up. Now the eyes are not raised too high. In other words, his focus is not on his glory, but God's glory. It's interesting that the eyes are made to be raised up in one respect, to look at God. Uh, We've heard this in the Psalms already. Think of Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. But the thing that the content man doesn't have with respect to raised eyes is a a haughty look a haughty look he does not think so highly of himself that he looks down on others 
You see, remember Jesus told the, that, um, that story of a Pharisee, you know, this religious man who kept all the law. And, and, and he was there and he, and he was with this, uh, this tax collector, really kind of bad guy, done a lot wrong. And the, and, and, and the tax collector is crying out to God, have mercy on me. He realizes his sin and his need for a, for a savior God. And the Pharisee looks across and says, I'm glad I'm not like him. A haughty look, looking down. I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as her over there. And so when you do that, you're just comparing yourself to others and you justify yourself as a sinner. You, you, you say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. It's what we're like when we won't forgive another person, when we won't apologise. We hold ourselves up as the judge and jury over that person whilst forgetting that we've received mercy and we need mercy every day. And therefore, as we've received mercy, we extend mercy. When you don't forgive, you show you don't know mercy given to you. You stand as judge and jury over that person that you will not forgive. Consider even in masses of Christian freedom, you know, those wisdom things where you have a freedom. How many times might we consider ourselves the stronger brother or stronger sister? When you look at another uh, brother or sister in the church, you have a, a haughty look to, to the so-called weaker one. I think at the beginning of COVID, I think um, Christians were maybe thinking this is a great opportunity for evangelism. The world will see that all that's wrong, that God is coming in judgment. That it's an open door to the gospel. They'll repent and believe. And, and then as the trial went on, we saw that the church was being threshed. And tested in the area of maybe obedience to authorities, of Christian freedom in what to do. As some differed in their opinions of, do you wear a mask or you don't wear a mask? We saw what really binds you together is Jesus Christ in the church. Not whether you wear a mask or not, what political opinion you have. And then you saw haughty eyes of Christians being revealed and unity being tested. See, friends, judgment begins in the house of the Lord, begins here tonight. And so the Christian ought to have a, a different posture, a humble posture. When you remember that by mercy you were rescued out of the depths of Psalm 130, and by mercy then you live in the sphere of Psalm 131, and you say with David, my eyes are not lifted up. And suffering teaches us that. Suffering teaches us that. Job goes through all sorts of hard suffering that the Lord ordains for him. And early on, if you remember the story of Job in the Old Testament, he's resolute and he blesses the name of the Lord, even uh, uh, as the Lord ordains this, this suffering in his life and he, he, he loses land and children and so on and wealth. And... But as the suffering goes on, and this is the case, isn't it? As the suffering goes on and his spirits wane. His pride rises a little bit. He gets a bit self-righteous. His eyes are lifted up. He can't figure out why God would allow such suffering to happen. And then God appears to him in a whirlwind. And he takes him on a tour of the universe. And basically says, can you create and uphold this, Job? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And of course, Job's eyes are lowered as he realises God's power and majesty and wisdom so superior to his. And then he bows down 
And he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. When a man's heart is lowered, his eye is lowered too. For the heart dictates what the eye focuses on. Remember what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So David teaches that contentment is rooted in a humble posture with respect to pride of the heart, having a lowered heart, and focus of the eye, having a lowered eye. And now he looks at the ambitions and actions with regards to this humble posture. He says, again, what he is not. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvellous for me. The actual Hebrew means something like this. I do not cause myself to walk in ways too wonderful and too marvellous for me. I.e. his ambitions and actions, what he occupies himself with. The humble person embraces God's secret will Even in the providences he faces, he does not try to sit over God and figure God out. Now, a caveat here. This doesn't mean we shouldn't study the Bible, shouldn't read great theology or preach deep sermons. We should be reading the Bible if we're going to grow. We should preach meaty sermons if we're going to feed the sheep. But it does... It doesn't mean we should have godly ambitions and and take risks for the Lord. We should have godly ambitions and take risks for the Lord. It doesn't mean we shouldn't contend for the truth. We should. Sermon last week from Jude. But it does mean we sit under God and we trust him. Even when we can't understand all the marvellous things that he's doing. Even when it doesn't marry up with the way that we think it should be done. So think at the moment, what, what restriction has God placed on your life at this moment? Like you want it to go a certain way that you think it should go and it's not at this moment. Is that okay with you? Is that okay with you even if it's very difficult for you? Or are you resisting it? Can you believe that God is still doing you good through it all? Or are you grumbling and complaining? One of God's great purposes with his difficult providences is to humble the person by confounding our wisdom. And it doesn't take much for us to start occupying ourselves with things too great for us. We can't figure why it's happening out. And then we become anxious and then we become angry and our minds wander down all these avenues of uncertainty. And then you make rash decisions and rash plans and your ambitions and actions become selfish. Not centred on what God wants. Sometimes we need to be still and know that God is God and wait upon him. The fact is, who in here would have thought that the way to glory was through the cross? Would any of us have invented that way? No. Only God is truly wise. It looked foolish to the world. It still looks foolish to the world that the Son of God would be killed on a tree. It wasn't grand enough. It's not grand enough, is it? But it's absolutely the perfect wisdom and power of God in his grace to save sinners. And the humble Christian is content even in bad times. It doesn't mean that bad times don't hurt us or make us sad, but it does mean we can have something that our circumstances can't touch. If you're a Christian here, you have something your circumstances cannot touch. 
So we need to embrace the Lord in those days and we need to hear him say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. You wouldn't be able to handle it if you knew all that I was doing here. So just rest in me. You know, sometimes like with, with children, with their parents, you know you're making a decision and the, the child can't see all the things that you see. And, they, might, and they, they can't see why you're not giving them what they actually want in that particular moment. But you see the big picture and you're giving them what they need for that moment, which is truly good for them in the long term. It's that way with God. Rest in me. If you want to read a, a picture of the, the humble and meek man, uh, read Psalm 137. The meek man here doesn't worry or get angry when he sees evildoers get in their way. He remembers they won't last. He stays faithful where he is and he delights in the Lord. He refrains from anger. He forsakes wrath. He shows patience. Do you ever feel anxious when you look around at the way the culture is going at the moment? Do you feel anxious about that? Mums and dads, if there's mums and dads in here with kids, are you worried about your kids' schooling or how they will cope in this world? What a different world it is. I've got two grandchildren and a grandniece just the other week, just born. What a different world they've come into that, that I was born into. How will they cope? How will you cope with extra government restrictions that might come in place? Even taking away parental uh, rights from us at times. You need to see the serenity of the humble man. Does not occupy himself with what's beyond him and what he can't control. He has a bigger view of God than of his circumstances. And when, friends, when we have a humble posture like David, we empty ourselves of self. We're poor in spirit. And when we act in the meekness of wisdom, as James puts it, that's the way of the Christian. It's interesting, Psalm 37 in verse 11 says, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Exactly what Jesus quotes from in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And Jesus describes himself in that way, doesn't he? Meek, he says, come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find contentment, true contentment in the meek man, Jesus Christ. And so David describes this humble posture with regards to the pride of the heart, the focus of the eyes and the ambitions and actions. And this humble posture is what undergirds true contentment. And next, the next thing that, that undergirds true contentment is a, is a childlike illustration. And here's the centre of the psalm. The centre of the psalm in verse 2. The content man is humble and he is childlike. He says, like, like a weaned child, look, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Notice there's a battle in view. David has had to act. I have calmed. I have quieted. And he's calmed and quieted this restless soul. This soul, meaning the whole self. The word soul has a sense of breath used of when 
The same Hebrew word used in Genesis when God breathes into the man, remember? He breathes into the man, he becomes a living creature. The fact that we are living creatures that have been breathed into by God gives the idea that we are completely dependent on God. That's why I pray that, thank you God, at the beginning, that you give us breath in our lungs tonight, that we can breathe. That's all of God. But he's breathed into Christians new life as new creations, even the spirit of God for spiritual life. So to calm and quiet your soul is to bring all that you are as a physical and spiritual being in submission to God and trust him. David had subdued his own selfishness and pride and clothed himself with humility, resting on the Lord. That's the meaning of the weaned child picture. See, there is an effort to, 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 to get to that stage. Paul often says, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, you need to strive for holiness. Uh, God gives us the means to, to Christian maturity. The word, prayer, the church. We need to be in the word, friends. We need to be people of prayer. We need to gather together. We need to have daily disciplines. It's like, you want to get fit? You know, physically fit. You have to train for it. There is an effort involved. The scene here of a, of a weaned child with his mother. You know, in the ancient world, uh, weaning would have happened at age three or four. For mothers in here, I bet you're glad that's not the case nowadays. Three or four. Still not wean. Babies go through a weaning process, don't they? And at first, and the weaning... There's this kind of desperation and impatience, even a panic as they cry for, for their mother or they cry for, for the bottle. Mum's just that source of food and babies want it now. And they won't wait. It's amazing, isn't it? The newborn babies cry. They're only this big, but it is piercing. Is it not? It's piercing. Unbelievable. Like, you know, six, seven pounds, they can make such a noise. I won't do an impression of it, but anyway. It won't wait. And that's like the unweaned Christian, right? Wanting what he or she wants and wanting it now and throwing an angry tantrum if you don't get it. Seeing God simply as a source of felt needs. And many Christians are happy to remain babies, but you can't stay a baby. You need, as the writer of Hebrews says, to leave milk behind and start on solids. Milk is for the immature, he says. Solid food is for the mature. Many churches are, are immature. Babies, un, unweaned if you like. Lots of people there, perhaps, mile wide, inch deep. They might have numbers, but they lack maturity. They're on milk. The hymns are light, the sermons are light. And they're lightweight when it comes to any suffering. And, and they lack stickability in relationships and church memberships. And when the going gets tough... They get going out of the door. Find a new church that, that, you know, that suits my felt needs, that panders to me. If you convey serious Christianity to them or correct them, you're accused of force-feeding them. And to some extent, we, want to, we all want to stay babies, don't we? Because it's more comfortable. It's a bit more comfortable. You don't need to take on responsibility. It doesn't, if you say a baby, it doesn't involve change that will hurt. But God wants this 
painful surrender, if you like, just as the mother of the child wants the child to surrender to the weaning process, knowing it will do them good in the end. Do you remember how Jacob, uh, Jacob wrestles the angel of the Lord and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he doesn't win, he loses, and as a result, there's a limp, a subdued, weaned man. And the reality is that in the Christian life, you need to surrender in order to be satisfied. You need to re- surrender to God in order to be content in God. So think at this moment now, what, what areas of your lives... Okay, I found this on the web for surrender. And that's my, uh, what's it called? Siri. Just went off. It heard me say surrender and then give me a few options. <laughs> it's going to critique my sermon in a minute, I think. <laughs> Amazing. What areas of your life are you struggling against God in? Maybe there's a particular sin that you're holding on to. You just won't let go. Maybe you're struggling with bitterness. Bitterness another person. Bitterness even against God because of difficult suffering in your life. Mourning the loss of a loved one. Mourning the loss of a friend. Maybe you're just pulling at the milk. And not submitting to God. When you do that though, when you do submit, that is the picture of the child trusting perfectly in its mother. And we have a beautiful example in the Bible of this kind of humble, childlike contentment. You know where we see this? We see it several times, but we see it wonderfully in Mary, don't we? Remember the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, and she's a young girl, right? She's a young tells her that she will conceive a child, the Son of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Imagine how Mary would have felt in that moment. Imagine how confused she might have been. Imagine how frightened she might have been. But what does Mary say? Do you remember? She says this, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Humble. Childlike, trusting Mary. There is a difference between being childlike and childish, though. God doesn't want us to be childish. We're called in 1 Corinthians to give up childish ways. But he wants us to be childlike. Jesus says, unless you come like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He is just speaking about simple trust. If you're not a Christian here this evening, all you need to do is come in simple trust to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. A child who says, Father, I trust you no matter what. I remember when we moved to Canada, our children were 15 and 12. It was a difficult thing for them. And we had our chats and we had our tears. But in the end, they trusted Amanda and me to do what was best and to seek their best. And all the time, we were wanting them to see that above us, they could trust in God for their good. They could trust in God for their good. When you are a weaned Christian, you've stopped struggling against God and you've stopped craving milk and you're satisfied, you know, to be with him, just to be with him and to do his will and to trust him to take care of you. You can hold lightly to money and fame and health even, and even to people. It's not that these things are necessarily bad, but they're not God. They're not God. And even in those deep and dark valleys, and the deepest and darkest valley that is death, you can trust him. 
you can trust him because he knows your frame. He's, Jesus is the God-man. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified, Jesus shows the ultimate example in his humanity of submission to his Father's will. There was distress. Everything in him, in one way, dreaded to go to the cross to endure the Father's wrath in the place of sinners like you and me. But it was the Father's will. And Jesus always agreed with the Father's will. So he says, Father, your will be done, not mine. And from that point forward, in Gethsemane, there was a poise and a contentment and control about Jesus. Even a certain hopeful anticipation of joy, as Hebrews says, he endured the cross for the joy set before him. The joy of securing salvation for people like you and me. The joy of glorifying his father. Here is the picture of a weaned child. Here is the picture of the son of God. Perfectly content, trusting God to the end, no matter how bad it looks from the outside, knowing God is with him and God will exalt him in the right time because God exalts the humble. So David shows that in true contentment we find, number one, a humble posture, and number two, this childlike illustration. And as time is moving on, and I must close now, finally we have a hopeful future, a hopeful Future, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's the, the final verse. So this humble man with a childlike faith in the Lord has emptied himself of himself and now looks outwards from himself to the Lord. You see, it's only when we turn away from self that we can find true hope. You know that. The world tells you, look within, look within, look within for hope. That's why everyone's depressed isn't it? Because when you look within, you're gonna, you, you haven't got the ability to give yourself great hope. Trust in yourself. Look within. When you are weaned, you're free from self-obsession. When you turn from self, you satisfy yourself with hope in God. And you know what happens? With that knowledge, you become concerned for others. So all you do and say tells them something of a hope that you have. Hoping God, hoping God. It's why we can have a great witness as Christians when we're suffering, because we have a hope in God. And they say, how can you have hope? You can't live without hope, you know. You can live without food for a little while. I don't know how many days it is. You can live without water for a little while. You can live without sleep for a little while. You can't live without hope for a second. As soon as you've lost complete hope, that's it. Hope in God. Confidence in God for tomorrow. If we know the one who owns tomorrow and causes all things to work together for our good, we have hope. If he rescued us out of the depths of Psalm 130 in order to live in Psalm 131, then we have a top note of hope in our lives. And when do we hope? It says it there. From this time forth, from this time forth, now. Not when the storm has passed, not when the suffering has ended, but now. And how long do we hope for? Forevermore, it says. It will never end, this hope. Not even in heaven. A hope will always be in him. So, brothers and sisters, you have a hope for the future because Christ died for you in the past and that gives you contentment in the present. Future, past, present. And that's in dark days, and that's in sunny days, and that's in sickness, and that's in health. 
That's in days of your youth, and that's in the days of old age. Your hope lies in the Lord and in heaven to come. It ends well for the Christian. Humble, childlike, hopeful, truly content for eternity. Have you learned the secret of contentment? It's all about surrender to Jesus. So I urge you to trust in him tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, even this uh, beautiful word that even as simple as it is, it penetrates our souls. And I pray that you would do a great work amongst us this evening, even as causing us to, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us now to respond in the right way. In Jesus' name, amen.